Father, you have shown to us your deep, deep love for us in Christ Jesus. You have shown to us your steadfast love and faithfulness that is new every morning. And you have revealed these things to us through your word, through the stories and the admonitions of scripture. That show us what you are like and what you have done. That show us the extent of your love. Deeper than an ocean, further than the furthest point on the earth that we can think of. Vaster than the universe. I pray that you would reveal that love to us now as we go to your word. That you would help us behold Christ and be more like him. I pray that you would do what only you can do, which is incline our hearts towards your word this morning. And to satisfy us with what we see there of Jesus. Would you meet each person in here? Where we need your grace this morning, would you lavish it through your word and by your spirit? We pray. Amen. Friends, we are going to be looking this morning at three more commandments from the Ten Commandments. And as I was reflecting on these commandments this week, and at the same time reading a book by Richard Baxter called The Reformed Pastor, where he encourages preaching that is simple and clear. I thought it doesn't get much more simple and clear than these three commandments, right? Don't be a murderer, don't be an adulterer, and don't steal. And then we're done, right? That's it. That's all we got to do. It's pretty simple. Shouldn't be too hard to work through that and apply it to our hearts. And most of us probably aren't murderers or adulterers or thieves. So we can go home happy and assured that God is happy with us. Obviously, thinking like that leads us to Jesus' words in the New Testament, specifically in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, where we see Jesus apply this law much more directly to our hearts. It doesn't let us off so easy. It's tempting when we think about the Ten Commandments to look at them as a list of things to do or not do and to conclude since we either do or don't do them that we're good, that we're fine. But friends, you'll find much more conviction, much more awareness of your need as I did this week when looking at these commandments, as I feel, When reading them, you will find much more awareness of that if you look beyond the surface to where they address the heart, which is what we're going to do today. We're going to do that, and it is worth your time this morning because as you have in your heart exposed the depth of your need, that need is met with the richness of the gospel. In other words, by looking at these this morning as we're going to, my hope and my prayer for you and for me is that we would grow in our love and appreciation and hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we're going to do that this morning by exploring these commandments. First of all, I want to remind us, as we have been doing, as has been our pattern, 
What is the law of God stated in the Ten Commandments? Read this with me, will you? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not covet. Amen. As I said, the meaning of these commands is relatively straightforward, right? They're found in Exodus chapter 20, verses 13 to 15. Simply says the word of God, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. That's our sermon text for this morning. They're very simple commands, right? We're familiar, first of all, with murder. The ESV translates, you shall not murder. That's fine. Another way to think about that is never murder. Never murder. We see throughout the Old Testament that this call, this command to never murder applies to killing in some ways, but not others. In other words, we see in the Old Testament the command to kill those who violate God's law in certain ways. This command does not forbid capital punishment, for example, but that's outside of the scope of what I want us to focus on this morning. Likewise, we see in books like Joshua, God's people commanded to go in and take over a land and kill everybody in that land as punishment, as judgment from Yahweh against rebellious people. This command does not prohibit killing in war, or what is called just war theory. Excuse me. What we see in this commandment is the forbidding of killing in an improper way. Killing in a selfish, excuse me, way. Killing for selfish reasons. We see that all through the scripture when murder happens like it does in Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel. It's because sin is crouching at the door and growing a heart of envy in Cain that he kills Abel. Or it is because of a desire to stop something from happening that will affect you negatively, that you don't want. This kind of killing includes abortion, killing an unborn baby for the sake of your own self, for the sake of maybe thinking that you're being merciful towards that child. This includes suicide, self-killing, or As you get older, something like physician-assisted suicide or what we call euthanasia. This includes forbidding all of those kind of self-centered, self-focused, and self-initiated killings. This forbids an individual in the scriptures from being judge, jury, and executioner. The command to never murder says that God alone is the one who gives life and who authorizes the taking of life. So God's people ought to never murder. You shall not commit adultery is similarly relatively simple and defined by the rest of scripture. Never commit adultery, God's word says. 
And when we look at the broader scope of the Old Testament in places like Leviticus and Ezekiel, we see that adultery is talked about in terms of breaking the promises of the marriage covenant, of being unfaithful to the promises of the marriage covenant, particularly the promise of sexual fidelity, being faithful to keep a promise towards sexual fidelity towards a spouse is what marriage calls for. And breaking that, going and having sexual relations that what the Bible talks about in terms of lying with, doing that with someone who is not your spouse, or who is married, is committing adultery. This attacks the one flesh union of marriage that we see in Genesis. This breaks that covenant promise that those joined together are supposed to honor. And so God's word says, don't commit adultery. Never commit adultery. Likewise, stealing. Never steal is defined by Old Testament law. We see, like in Exodus 21.16, that man stealing or enslaving someone is against God's law and punishable. We see in Leviticus 19.13 that withholding wages that are owed a worker is considered stealing. If an employer doesn't pay his workers what they're owed. We see in Leviticus 10.35 and 37 that cheating someone through deceiving them or tricking them is also stealing. And we see in Leviticus 6 that defrauding your neighbor through a finder's keeper's mentality In other words, if you find your neighbor's stuff laying about and no one's watching it and you take it, that's stealing. This command to never steal implies that God has given personal property and that he requires that his people respect personal property. And so they ought to never steal. Relatively simple. We're familiar with these concepts, right? These aren't complicated things to think about what is murder, what is adultery, and what is stealing. For our purposes this morning, I want to think about why did God give these laws to his people? What was his intent behind highlighting in in the ten most important laws he gave? Ethical behaviors like not murdering, not committing adultery, and not stealing. The purpose of these laws we find in many places, but one of them I want to look at is Deuteronomy 32, 45 to 47. We saw this text last week when we talked about honoring your parents. And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, take heart, all the, take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land that you were going over the Jordan to possess. These laws, just like the law to honor your parents, was given for the purpose of flourishing in the land. So that God's people might live long and prosper in the land that he was leading them into. Think about it. If if you honor life, if you don't kill your neighbor, then of course people are going to live longer in the land, right? Because they're not going to be being killed right and left. Makes sense. If you honor marriage and you have in the land families where husbands and wives can count on each other to be faithful to their promises... And by extension, children can count on their parents to keep their promises to one another. That provides tremendous stability and blessing, right? If you live in 
a land flowing with milk and honey, and you honor the property of your neighbor, not stealing it, that promotes everyone enjoying that bountiful blessing of a land flowing with milk and honey, right? And it promotes everyone having enough to share when needs do arise. Because God put laws in place in the land for caring for the sojourner and the orphan and the widow. And one of the ways that you did that was out of your personal property. And if people didn't steal it, then you had it to give. These laws promote this flourishing of God's people in the land. And and by extension, they're, they're meant to be blessings to God's people. But that's not the only reason God put these laws in place. That's not even, I would argue, the primary reason. See, God wanted his people to flourish in the land that he was giving them for a purpose of mission. In Genesis 12, when Abraham is given this promise that God will make him a great nation, he's told, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Genesis 12, 1 to 3, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. Abraham was chosen as a particular person to be the father of a nation that would be a blessing not only to themselves, but to others. That through them, God would bless all of the earth. Those who blessed them would be blessed, and those who cursed them, because they were opposing God, would be cursed. This is the mission that God gave Abraham in the promised land, the land that he said, I'm going to give this to your descendants. That was meant to be home base for the mission. For God to pour out those blessings, and for those blessings to flow to the nations. All throughout Exodus, God talks in terms of accomplishing this mission so that people will know who he is. We see this illustrated really clearly if we think about his interactions with Pharaoh. When Moses comes and tries to say, let my people go, Pharaoh says this, Exodus 5, 2. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. I do not know Yahweh. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. All that God does to Pharaoh and to Egypt is so that Pharaoh and Egypt will know who God is. Exodus 7, 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. His purpose is to make his name known. That's the same purpose he's going to bless Abraham to be a blessing is so that the nations will know That God alone is God. So that the nations will know that God alone is God. And it works. We see in Joshua 2, when the spies of Israel come into the promised land and encounter Rahab. You know what she tells them? I've heard of what God did to Egypt. And you serve the true and living God. And I will trust in him too. So she hides the spies. And she's counted as faithful. Hebrews 11 puts her in the hall of faith with Abraham because she heard of what God had done because the mission had gone forward and told a story about Yahweh. That's what these commands are meant to do. They're meant to bring God's people into this promised land and preserve them there and allow God to pour out his blessings there so that a story could be told about who God is and what he's like. Life in the promised land was meant to be life in the kingdom of God under King Yahweh. 
And the life there was meant to display God and his ways. And these commandments direct God's people on how to participate in that story. Part of the participation in that story is do not murder, do not commit adultery, and do not steal. How do those things direct God's people to participate in the story? That's what I want to think about next. How do they teach us about God and his ways? First of all, the command to never murder teaches us that God values the lives of his image bearers. God values the lives of his image bearers. If we look at where the command to not murder comes, it initially comes to us in scripture in Genesis 9. After the flood, when God is reaffirming his promises to Noah. At the end of Genesis 9, we read, in, or excuse me, at the end of this section in Genesis 9, verse 6, we read, Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by, his, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. In other words, murdering is wrong because mankind bears the image of God. This is why it's not murdering for Malachi to go and slay a couple deer last weekend, right? They're not made in the image of God and we are given dominion over them as creatures that God has given us. But it would be wrong to kill another human being because they are made in the image of God. The image bearers of God... We're called to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with the glory of the Lord. With his image, right? Until the earth is full of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is Genesis 9.1. God reaffirms this to Noah. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's the same language that God uses with Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1. Verses 27 and 28. They're created in his image. And then they're told, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The implication is with that image. God values the image of himself that he's put in us as mankind. And this means that each life is precious and worth preserving. That image bearers of God have inherent dignity and value and ought not to be destroyed. And to murder... It, it destroys that story, right? It says the image of God in this fellow human being does not matter. It says either from a personal perspective, I don't care that they possess the image of God. Or it communicates to the watching world, you know what? There is no image of God. And this fellow human being is just like the animals. We can kill as many as we want. We can kill however we want. Murder is a direct attack on the image of God. And it communicates that that image does not matter. And so if there was murder in the promised land where the image of God is supposed to shine most brightly, it would clearly contradict the story God's people were called to tell, wouldn't it? Likewise, adultery tells a story. The command to never commit adultery is commanded because God is faithful. We know from Scripture that God is faithful, right? Deuteronomy 7, 9, for example. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. We know that God is faithful to keep his covenant promises. That's why he was bringing his people into the promised land in the first place. 
And his people are meant to enjoy that blessing and respond in kind with covenant faithfulness, keeping his commandments, right? The message that God was trying to give his people and display through them is that happiness and joy and satisfaction is found in faithfulness and keeping faithfulness to covenants. God gave marriage as a parable of this covenant. Faithfulness to the marriage covenant is meant to tell a story. A story of a promise-keeping God who cares for his people and keeps his promises. And adultery says that story doesn't matter. Adultery destroys the image of faithfulness that's supposed to be present in marriage. Adultery says that happiness is not found in faithfulness. Happiness is not found in keeping covenant promises. But adultery tells the story that happiness is found in self-centered pursuit of desire. In using another image bearer for your own desires. Adultery is also a picture in scripture of spiritual unfaithfulness. What we might call idolatry from the rest of the commandments, right? We see in Jeremiah 3.20... God says, surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. As these pictures of adultery have happened, this is what you've done to me, God says to his people. Ezekiel 23, 37, for they have committed adultery and blood is on their hands. With their idols, they have committed adultery and they have even offered up to them for food, the children whom they have had born to me. Israel was called to be faithful to Yahweh. And their faithlessness was spiritual adultery. And God prohibits all adultery from his people. They must never destroy this picture of God's faithfulness. Likewise, stealing tells a story of God in his land. The command to never steal tells us that you will never need to steal because God himself is the one that satisfies you. The command to never steal says that God satisfies. Think about the promised land. Listen, listen to the descriptions. Deuteronomy 6, 10 to 11. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, this is what you expect in the promised land. Or Exodus 3, 8, I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Why would a people being brought into a land like that need to be told not to steal? Why would you want to steal? Why would you need to steal if you're given all of this? The promised land was meant to illustrate how God blesses and satisfies his people. And stealing contradicts that story, right? Stealing says that God is not generous, that God has not given enough, that God's provision is not sufficient, that God himself cannot satisfy. Stealing says that the promised land is not actually A land of blessing. A land flowing with milk and honey. The description of the promised land should remind you of somewhere else. Does me. 
does readers of scripture throughout the ages. This promised land was a new type of Eden. A new place where blessing and abundance flowed and God dwelled with his people. Right? The same things God says don't do in the promised land are the same things that Adam and Eve did in the garden. Right? In Genesis 3, we know from the story that Adam and Eve believed the lie that God does not satisfy. Don't they? And they take for themselves the fruit from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. They believe the lie that God will not be faithful to keep his promises. And so what do they do? They try to secure those promises for themselves. They try to find their happiness away from faithfulness. Ultimately, Adam and Eve are convinced by Satan that the image of God within them does not matter. But that instead they reach out and take the fruit because they're convinced that by doing so, they will become like gods themselves. That's what Satan promises, right? God doesn't want to give you this because he knows you will become as gods. They already possess the image of their creator. And they said, that's not enough. And so what they did in their attempt to become like God, they committed self-murder. They suicidally took the fruit. Because God had said, when you take and eat of that, you will surely die. They ignored that. This is the sin nature that permeates the descendants of Adam and Eve ever since. And this is the sin nature that God knew that his people were carrying into the promised land. This temptation to murder and to commit adultery and to steal would be there and would be strong. And these commandments were given to restrain that sin nature and tell God's people, this is how you experience blessing in the land. And this is how you tell the true story about what I am like. The true story that is God alone who saves and satisfies. This is the story that God's people were supposed to tell in the garden. That is God alone who saves and satisfies. And Adam and Eve did not. They looked somewhere else. This is the story that God's people in the promised land were meant to tell. It is God alone who saves and satisfies. It is God who rescued us from slavery in Egypt and who brought us into this good land filled with all this blessing. They ultimately failed to tell that story. It doesn't seem like the standards God put on them were very stringent, were they? Like, don't be a murderer, don't commit adultery, and don't steal. That seems not like something outstanding or something that impressive. Like, I'm not super impressed if you manage not to kill anybody this week and not to commit adultery and not to steal anything. That seems more like being Minnesota nice to me than it seems like obeying the commands of God and telling a story about who he is. The question that I wrestle with and that I want us to wrestle with is what is distinctly Christian about not being a murderer, not being an adulterer, not being a thief? What is distinctly Christian about not doing these things? This points us to the positive requirements of the law. 
the positive requirements of the law. What I mean by that is when I worked in special education, we would write goals for kids and we would have what's called a dead man's test for those goals. In other words, if a dead man can do it, it's not a good goal. So if I wrote a goal for a kid that said, don't hit somebody more than twice a day and they didn't show up to school that day, they technically met that goal. But that's not really producing in them any kind of change, is it? And so God is not merely telling his people, don't do these bad things. He's also telling them by extension, this is positively what holiness looks like. This is what I really require of you. We see that as we go into the New Testament and see how Jesus saw these laws. Jesus in the New Testament gives us a new standard. It's really not a new standard. It's the standard that was there all along. But Jesus peels back the layers for us and reveals what these laws are actually requiring. We read about this in the Sermon on the Mount. That the command to never murder actually has more to it. Matthew five twenty one to 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, Jesus says. You shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. In other words, the command not to murder goes down much deeper than merely physical violence against someone. You must not only never murder, you must never hate. You must never insult. A little bit later in Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48, Jesus tells us to love our enemies. Requiring positive action. The command to never murder calls us to love our enemies. We see this in question 11 of the New City Catechism. The first part says that the sixth commandment requires this. It says that we do not hurt or hate or be hostile to our neighbor, but be patient and peaceful, pursuing even our enemies with love. I feel like the first half of that is a little bit easier to do than the second half. Jesus does the same thing with adultery. Matthew five twenty seven to 30. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. That sounds a lot more stringent than merely tolerating to live together for the rest of your life. Right? So many marriages these days... Less and less because adultery and divorce is getting more common in our society. But so many marriages these days, the standard of faithfulness is we continue to live together. Right? But Jesus calls us to a new standard, both of purity of heart. Do not look lustfully at someone. But also of self-sacrificial love. In Ephesians 5, Paul instructs us that we ought to love one another. In a very specific way. Wives submitting to their husbands. Out of reverence for Christ. And husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her. 
right? This is calling for positive, Christ-centered, radical love. That's what the New City Catechism communicates in the second part of question 11. The seventh commandment means that we abstain from sexual immorality and live purely and faithfully, whether in marriage or in single life, avoiding all impure actions, looks, words, thoughts, or desires, and whatever might lead to them. God's people seek purity and faithfulness radically. Jesus doesn't address stealing in that section of the Sermon on the Mount, but we could imply that he would say the same thing about those from other places where he talks about how we ought to think about resources. He says in Luke twelve thirty-two to 34, Fear not, little flock, for it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus repeatedly calls his people to radical generosity. Not just refraining from taking what somebody else has, but doing good to others through being generous with what God has given you. Question 11 of the New City Catechism, the third part, says that the Eighth Commandment requires that we do not take without permission that which belongs to someone else, yes, but that we also don't withhold any good from someone we might benefit. It's also stealing to withhold good from others when we could benefit them. Jesus brings this new standard to bear through his own life because he really calls his people to love one another As he has loved them. And Jesus doesn't merely refrain from murdering them. Right? Jesus doesn't merely not take their stuff. Jesus doesn't merely remain faithful to them. But he remains faithful to the end. Jesus shows us that love as he has loved us requires self-sacrifice and not self-centeredness. And the Sermon on the Mount teaches us that this kind of self-sacrifice is a matter of the heart. Not just a matter of the law. God's law was always meant, though, to be a matter of the heart. This isn't anything new, really. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 to 16... God speaking to Israel through Moses. Moses writes, Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, the Lord your God, to the Lord your God, belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are to this day. The implication is they ought to obey. And then what does he say? Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Deuteronomy talks throughout about uncircumcised hearts. God's people circumcised in the flesh and set apart for him, but with hearts that are far from him. With hearts that are hardened against him. With hearts that fail to obey. That uphold maybe the minimal standard of the law. But with hearts filled with hate and with lust and with greed. See the problem 
for Israel. Their fundamental problem was not external, was not a failure to obey the law. Their fundamental problem was a failure to internalize the law. To have the law written on their hearts in a way that allowed them to obey the law from the heart. Israel's failure in the promised land showed us that we don't need a new Eden. God gave them the promised land to show them that Eden wasn't their problem. That their problem went deeper. It showed them and it shows us that we need new hearts. And this is the love principle behind these commands. That love of God and neighbor requires a new heart. Love of God and neighbor requires a new heart. What we learn from these commands, because Jesus shows us that they're meant to deal with the heart, is we learn that apart from Jesus, we are all guilty under the law. Some of us are guilty from failure to avoid sin. Some of us lash out in anger. Respond with insults. Some of us look with burning passions. Some of us hoard and take and deceive. Whether you're guilty of failure to avoid sin or not, you're definitely guilty of failure to practice love, right? Pursue others with love. I might be able to avoid being angry at someone, but pursuing them with love is a whole other ballgame. Live faithfully. Don't just avoid. It is not sufficient to avoid looking lustfully at someone, to use them for your own desires. If you are not faithful to the spouse you've been called to. Not withholding good from those we might benefit. That's a call to radical generosity that is so hard to do. It's not as hard to avoid stealing. But even if you can avoid stealing technically, we're still so often guilty of these things, aren't we? Even if you could keep all of these external laws, your heart is still sick with self-centered sin. We see this in the example of the rich young ruler who says, all of these commands, Jesus, I have kept from my birth. And what does Jesus tell him to do? Go, sell all your possessions, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And what does he do? He goes away sad. Because his possessions were very great. Which tells you something about the state of his heart and his actual desire to honor God in all things. Jesus didn't tell him that because we're all called to sell all our possessions. He told him that because he knew where his heart was at. And that he was guilty. Just like we are. The reality is, friends, that we are all murderers, we are all adulterers, we are all thieves. Apart from Jesus, we lack the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Hebrews twelve fourteen talks about that. Some of us might be counting on Minnesota nice to be enough. It is not. If that's you this morning, repent. Your righteousness is not enough. Your mere abstaining from killing anybody is not enough. Your mere faithfulness to your spouse, 
is not enough. Merely avoiding breaking the law and taking whatever you want from a store is not enough. No amount of righteousness that you or I do will ever be enough to make up for the fact that we are murderers, adulterers, and thieves. So repent. Do what King David did after committing adultery with Bathsheba and murdering her husband, Uriah. Repent and call out to God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Create in me what we need. A clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. The law points to the greatness of our need, does it not? The beautiful promise of the gospel, though, is that though you and I are murderers, adulterers, and thieves, guess what? God saves and satisfies murderers, adulterers, and thieves. God saves and satisfies through Jesus Christ, murderers, adulterers, and thieves. Just look at Paul, who is breathing threats and murder when Jesus found him on the road to Damascus. And what did he say? 1 Timothy 1.15, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Sinners, such as Paul, who were literally murderers. How much more will Christ save us if we cry out to him? See, Jesus comes and brings this promise of a new heart. He fulfills the call of the psalmist, create in me a new heart, O God. He sprinkles clean our consciences and he gives his spirit. This is what Christ came to do, to bring this promise of a new heart and the gift of the Holy Spirit so that our obedience would not be trying to make ourselves right and trying to undo the, the evil we have done, but that our obedience would flow from this transformed heart and that we would live in God's kingdom as his kingdom people, filled with his spirit, transformed by his spirit, and showing this message that God alone saves and satisfies. That our only hope as murderers, thieves, and adulterers is to turn to the God alone who saves and who satisfies and will save and will satisfy you if you turn to him. Paul says, following this admission that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, he says, I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him. For eternal life. Jesus Christ is patient. With murderers. Adulterers. And thieves. Like you and I. He calls us to repent. And to turn to him. And to trust in him. And to receive this new heart. And now walk in spirit given life. To the king of the ages. Immortal. Invisible. The only God. Be honor and glory. Forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. King Jesus, I thank you that you are indeed perfectly patient.
I thank you that the testimony of Scripture is a testimony of your patience with your people over and over and over again. Jesus, would you not let us escape from here without letting the weight of your commands fall on us? That we really are in need of your patience. That it's not just an empty promise, but it's a promise that we must cling to. It's a promise that we long for and need and you provide. Would you help us be like David and cry out to you, create in me a clean heart? And would you meet that and supply what only you can supply, the holiness without which we will not see the Lord? Would you transform us from murderers and adulterers and thieves to your blessed children? We pray, God, that you would do this through your son Jesus and by your spirit. Amen.